Turn in your Bibles this morning to the book of John. John chapter 7. Now last week we finished all the way to verse 13. Today we'll start at verse 14. And I want to begin with, with sharing again where John writes about what his purpose for writing the book of John is. John tells us that the reason he wrote it, he says this in John chapter 20, verse 31, that this is written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in His name. The reason John wrote this is that when people come face to face with who Jesus is, the reality of Jesus, they will believe, that is, they will trust in Him and not themselves, and they will come to faith that they will be born again, changed, transformed, made new. Now, as we come to this this section in John chapter 7, I want you to put away maybe any preconceived ideas you might have about Jesus. Because what this section is really going to focus on is the uniqueness of who Jesus is. He is unlike anyone else ever born. He is unlike anyone you may know. He is one of a kind. And throughout history, many people have tried to explain Jesus away. He, he's been called a political zealot, a religious nut, just a good man just a prophet, but he is so much more than any human definition. And what we'll see here in this text is that he is the unique one, the Son of God, God in the flesh who dwelt among us. And we have had the privilege to behold his glory, and we still behold his glory in the text of the Scripture here. So I want to ask you to have an open heart this morning, because through this text, we'll see that Jesus truly is unique. Let's look at verses 14 through 18. It says, But when it was now in the midst of the feast, Jesus went up to the temple and he began to teach. And the Jews then were astonished, saying, How has this man become learned, having never been educated? And so Jesus answered them and said, My teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. If anyone is willing to do his will, he will know of the teaching, whether it is of God or whether I speak for myself. He who speaks from himself seeks his own glory, but he who is seeking the glory of the one who sent him, he is true, and there is no unrighteousness in him. So what makes Jesus unique? First, we see that Jesus was unique in his teaching. Jesus was unique in his teaching. Now, all of us know that we're flawed. Mankind is flawed. We, we have a sin nature, but Jesus is the perfect God-man. And everything he says is truth. It's inspired. It is the Word of God. Now, as a way of review, if you remember, John chapter 6 and John chapter 7, there's actually about a seven-month period that's not recorded in the book of John. And what Jesus did in that seven-month period is, is Jesus let his disciples know that he was going to go to Jerusalem, that he would die. He would suffer and die on the cross to pay for mankind's sin. And he also shared with them that he would rise again. And when we come to this section right here, it's now the Feast of Tabernacles, or some call it the Feast of Booths. And if you remember last time I spoke, that Jesus' brothers were trying to get him to go up to the feast. They wanted him to be a part of the feast from the very beginning, but Jesus kind of hangs back. Why? Because he says his time had not yet come. There is God's timetable when Jesus would suffer and die for the sins of the world. And that time is not now. As a matter of fact, it's going to be about in six months at the Passover. So what Jesus does is he hangs back. He doesn't go right away. He's going to go in secret. 
And so what we see in the beginning here is Jesus goes up to Jerusalem and, and he kind of sneaks in and he kind of makes his way to the temple and he goes into the temple. And the reason is that he's trying to avoid these Jewish leaders that might want to capture him and kill him. And so Jesus is in the, in the temple, but then he begins to preach, he begins to teach. Look at verses 14 and 15, it says, but when it was now in the midst of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and began to teach and the Jews were astonished saying, how has this man become learned, having never been educated? So Jesus shows up in kind of the middle of this feast. He works his way into the temple, and he begins to, to speak. Now, before Jesus had been there, before he was teaching, there were a lot of questions about who Jesus was. The people were asking, who is he? And so we know that from verse 12 of chapter 7. It says that among the crowds, they were grumbling. And some of the people said that he was a good man, and other people said that he was leading people astray from God. So you kind of have this mixed opinion about who Jesus was. And the people were confused about who Jesus was. But now when Jesus goes in and he begins to teach, the questions shift from who he was to what he said. Because when Jesus speaks, he speaks with a power like no man. And, and he begins to, to share, and he taught like no one else. As a matter of fact, it says that when he began to teach, that they were astonished. Now, the Greek word there is thalmazo, and it means that they marveled, that they were amazed, that they were in wonder at his teaching. Jesus taught like no one else. He taught the truth with absolute clarity. Every word is scripture out of his mouth because he is God in the flesh. And he taught with power. And Jesus' teaching was radical. It was so different than what they were used to hearing from the Pharisees and from the Sadducees and from these scribes. And they marveled at his words as he proclaimed the gospel truth of God. And Jesus himself is truth. He's truth personified in his very person. And everything he declared, he declared it without error. In verse 15, as they're marveling at what he says, they say, how has this man become learned, having never been educated? So these leaders, they know that Jesus is from Nazareth. They know that, that he's just a simple man. He's a carpenter's son. And, and they're trying to figure out, how is this man who's never been trained by the rabbinical schools, how does he bring such a strong, powerful mes message? How does he know the word of God so well? It's because he spoke with the power of God is because he is unique among men. Isaiah 55, 8 says, for, the, for my thoughts are not your thoughts, my ways are not your ways, says the Lord. Jesus is different than anyone. He is the Son of God. He is God in the flesh. And he begins to preach with such power. Now, we know that the words of Jesus had power. They had miraculous power. If you remember already by this time, this is the third year of his ministry, Jesus had already said, hush, be still to a storm, and instantly a gigantic storm was stilled. Jesus was speaking to a centurion whose servant was ill, and he says to the servant whose servant was miles away, let it be to you as you believe, and instantly that servant was healed. Jesus stands outside the tomb of Lazarus. He's been in the grave four days. And Jesus says, Lazarus, come forth, and a dead man is raised from the dead. Power in what he said. But what he's saying here, what he's preaching is not miraculous power. 
It is the power of the Word of God. And the Word of God, even today, still has power. It is truth. And it carries with it the literal words of God. That's why we're not ashamed of the gospel. Because it is the power of God to save, to change lives. It radically comes into a person's life and radically transforms. So Jesus teaching these leaders, they're stunned. Now, it's interesting to note how, how Jesus replies to them. Because the way that he replies to them, it shows us enormous gulf that exists between all human teaching and divine teaching. Listen to Jesus' words. He says, my teaching is not mine, but him who sent me. Jesus is saying, this is no human teaching. This teaching is divine, directly from the Father through me. You are hearing God's words here. This is truth. My words are inspired. And the people, when they heard him, they marveled. Now, at the beginning of Jesus' ministry, this is not new, that people were astonished at his teaching. From the very beginning, when Jesus began to teach, people were amazed at what he said. When Jesus first started his ministry, and just after he had called his disciples, he went into the area of Capernaum. And when he goes in that area, he goes into the synagogue. Let me read to you Mark chapter 1, verses 21 and 22. It says, he went into Capernaum, and immediately on the Sabbath, he entered the synagogue, and he began to teach. It says, they were amazed at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one having authority, not as the scribes. So from the very start of his ministry, when he begins to preach, he preaches in a way they've never heard. He preaches with authority, with power, with truth, like no one has ever preached. When Jesus was preaching on the Sermon on the Mount, and he was proclaiming the Word of God, he taught differently than the scribes and the Pharisees had taught. Understand what the Pharisees and the scribes did is they would often quote other scribes. They would quote man's tradition and not the Word of God. But Jesus says, I say unto you. Listen to Matthew 5, 21 and 22. He says, you have heard that the ancients were told you shall not commit adultery. And whoever commits murder, I'm sorry, you have heard that the ancients were told you shall not commit murder. And whoever commits murder shall be liable to the court. But I say unto you that everyone who is angry with his brother is guilty before the court. Jesus said in Matthew 5, 27 and 28, you have heard it said you shall not commit adultery. But I say unto you, if a man even looks upon a woman in lust, he has committed adultery in his heart. Jesus said in Matthew 5, 33 and 34, he says, again, you've heard the ancients were told you shall not make false vows, but you shall fulfill your vows to the Lord. But I say unto you, make no oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by earth for it is his footstool. And on and on, Jesus taught, I say unto you. He is unique. He is like anyone else who's ever taught. After he preached the Sermon on the Mount, in Matthew chapter 7, verses 28 and 29, it says that the crowds were amazed at his teaching. They were thamazo. They were stunned. They marveled. It says his teaching, he's teaching as one having authority, not as the scribes. He taught us no one ever has. Crystal clear truth. Absolute clarity. 
And we need to understand what happened is the, the rabbis of that day, the Jewish leaders, they had drifted away from the truth. They were teaching man's ways, man's traditions. And this is why Jesus was always angry with them. This is why he always confronted them. In Mark 7, he says, you're neglecting the commandment of God and you hold to the tradition of men. But here, Jesus doesn't quote tradition. He's quoting pure word, God's word. And so they questioned him about his teaching in verse 16. And he says, my teaching is not mine, but him who sent me. Who sent me. And Jesus is saying, this is not some philosophy. This is not some man-made, made-up kind of way of teaching. This is God's word. This is truth. Listen to what I'm saying. Now, there's a reason that these leaders were struggling. And it wasn't only because their hearts were hard. It was because they, they hadn't been, if you will, ministered to, brought forward, empowered by the Holy Spirit to understand. The inspired word to truly be understood, it's more than just human reasoning and intellect. The Holy Spirit must work and draw a person and help a person to understand. Now, we know this from 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14. It says, but a natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God for their foolishness to him. And he cannot understand them because they're spiritually appraised. These leaders in that day, they had shut down. They were hard-hearted. They didn't want to know the truth of God. They wanted to know their ways. And so they wouldn't listen. And some people think that, that the way the Bible is, it's kind of archaic. It's kind of old-fashioned. But I want you to understand something. The Bible is truth, and it never changes. Now, I, I understand that things are changing, and it's amazing to me some of the advances in knowledge and medicine in, in, in things such as science and technology. I am stunned sometimes by the things that come out every year. But can I tell you, none of that impacts the truth of God's Word. And it will not change one jot or one tittle of God's Word. There will be nothing that will be shared ever that will ever make God's Word obsolete. As a matter of fact, Jesus said this in Matthew 5, 18. He says, For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not even the smallest letter or stroke shall pass from the law until it is all accomplished. All of God's Word will remain because it's truth. And Jesus only spoke truth. And here's the key. God's truth. The Word of God, it must be received by faith. You have to be willing to believe. Honestly, you have to have a heart like a child. You got to be humble. You got to simply say, Lord, I want to know. But these, these Pharisees, they didn't want to know. These leaders, they didn't want to know. Their hearts were hard. And actually, they hated Jesus because he spoke the truth. And in verse 17, Jesus confronts them and he says, If anyone is willing to do his will, he will know of the teaching whether it is of God or whether I speak from myself. He says, if anybody's willing to do his will, do the Father's will, he'll know the teaching. There must be a, a humble response to the truth. There must be a willingness to the heart to want to know it, a seeking, if you will, in your heart. If you want to know what the, the will of God is. Now understand that Jesus already said what the will of God is to them. In John chapter 6, verse 40, Jesus says, For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who beholds the Son and believes in Him 
will have eternal life. And I myself, I'll raise him up on the last day. That is the will of the Father. When you behold who Jesus is, that you will believe, that you will respond in faith with an openness of your heart, that you won't shut off your heart from God like these people were, but that you will accept the truth of Christ. That is the will of God. And when you respond that way, the word of God becomes apparent to you. These religious leaders, they thought they were examining Jesus, that they were judging Jesus, but what they didn't know is they were heaping judgment upon themselves. In verse 18, Jesus says, He who speaks from himself, he seeks his own glory. But he who is seeking the glory of the one who sent him, he is true, and there is no unrighteousness in him. These religious leaders, they were about seeking their own glory. They were about doing the traditions of men, about doing their own thing, but that wasn't Jesus. Everything he did, he did for the Father, to honor him. The Son glorified the Father, and as we know, the Father will glorify the Son. Now, because of the uniqueness of who Christ is and his teaching, it has literally changed our world. Understand, in ancient times, when you, you took a look at the way children were treated, in ancient world, children were routinely left out to die of exposure, and particularly women, little girls. But Jesus' treatment of children and his teaching about children, about bring the little children unto me, it, it changed the view of culture. And then Christians were the one that went and rescued those children. And that's where we have what's called an orphanage began, is because of Christ's teaching. In education, the ancient world loved education, but it tended to be reserved only for those who were wealthy and the elite. But the notion that every person bore the image of God, the idea that we were to love the Lord, like Jesus said, with all our heart, soul, and mind, when that teaching went out, it changed education. Now it became available to all. As a matter of fact, Cambridge, Oxford, Harvard, all began from Jesus-inspired teaching that we were to love God with all one's mind. Compassion. Jesus showed compassion to the worst of these, to those that were hurting, even to the leper, which would have been totally neglected and estranged from the people in Israel. But Jesus healed them, and he spoke lovingly to the hurting. And because of that teaching, the idea of the good Samaritan became normal and became a virtue. As a matter of fact, there are hospitals now this idea about the hospital, helping the needy, came from Christian teaching. And we have hospitals called the Good Samaritan Hospital and the Good Shepherd Hospital and so on. How about humility? In the ancient world, they did not value the virtue of humility. But Jesus' teaching, when he washed the disciples' feet, it became a virtue. But now it's good to be a humble man. And how about forgiveness? What Pastor Brian spoke about last week in the ancient world, the virtue meant that you rewarded your friends and you punished your enemies, but an alternative idea came from Jesus that we're to love our enemies and we're to be reconciled to them, and on and on I could go. The teaching of Christ is unique. Do you know him as a unique one? Jesus is unique in his teaching. Second thing, Jesus is unique in his wisdom and his knowledge. Jesus is unique in his wisdom and his knowledge. Everything that Jesus said is complete wisdom, and all of his judgments are righteous. Look at verses 19 through 24. It says, did not Moses give you the law, and yet none of you carries out the law? I mean, why do you seek to kill me? The crowd answered, you have a demon. Who seeks to kill you? And Jesus answered them, I did one deed, and you all marveled. 
For this reason, Moses has given you circumcision, not because it's from Moses, but from the fathers. And on the Sabbath, you circumcise a man. If a man receives circumcision on the Sabbath so that the law of Moses will not be broken, are you angry with me because I made an entire man well on the Sabbath? Do not judge according to appearance, but judge with righteous judgment. Jesus begins here in verse 19, did not Moses give you the law and yet none of you carries the law? I think this is one of the clearest, most accurate statements that the Lord could make about the truth of man's sinfulness. No one can carry the law. Not one person has been able to keep the law. And even though these Jews there, they revered the laws of Moses, they thought to acquire their salvation by careful effort of obeying the law, the real truth is that not one person has ever entered into heaven by keeping the law. Because that's not why the law was given. The Bible teaches that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Now, I was reading the book of Amos, and Amos has a statement in there about the people of Israel. He says this, he says, Thus says the Lord, they rejected the law of the Lord and have not kept His statutes, and their lies have also led them astray. That truth that Amos said about the people of Israel is the same truth that has gone down through every generation of mankind. And this is why Romans 3, 10, and 11 says there is not one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands. There is no one who seeks for God. And I think a fundamental spiritual error of mankind is we think that somehow we can appease God with our effort, that somehow if we do certain things, God throws it in a bucket, and if we do certain bad things, He throws it in another bucket, and you hope the good outweighs the bad, but that is not truth. Nobody can keep it. Nobody can earn it. Nobody can do it. I'll tell you why the law was given. The law was given so that we would realize we fall short, and we begin to seek God's mercy and in seeking God's mercy, he displays Christ to a lost and dying world. It was given to cause man to realize he is a sinner and to point them to the forgiveness found in Christ. Now, Romans 3.20 is one of the clearest texts on that. Paul wrote it, he said, Because by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. For through the law comes the knowledge of sin. Did you hear that? You will not be justified by somehow trying to earn your way to God, keeping the law. It's the law that helps you to know that you're a sinner. And when you understand that you fall short of his standard, then you begin to seek. Galatians 3.11 puts it this way. It says, now we know that no one is justified by the law before God, and that's evident, for the righteous man shall live by faith. Galatians 3.24 says, therefore the law has become a tutor to lead us to Christ so that we may be justified by faith. Again, the law is used to highlight our hearts of sin so that we will respond in the one that he sent to take care of our sin. Jesus was able to keep the law. He lived it perfectly and by faith, trust in him, you're made right before God. Now, one commentator put it like this. He said, the law of Moses was made to reveal sin, not to save. The Jews had perverted it to be the means of salvation, and they refused to be indicted by it and driven to the mercy of God in the Messiah, Jesus. And I kind of look at the law kind of like a mirror. Now, a mirror, sometimes you go in front of the mirror and you look and you go, ooh, my face is dirty. Now, you're not going to take your face and smudge it up against the mirror and 
try to use the mirror to deal with your dirty face. No, the mirror is to drive you to soap and water, right? The law drives us to Christ. It's through him that we're cleansed. It's through Jesus that we're made right before God. Our, our sin is dealt with. It's not through the law. The law points, and it always points to Christ. The law's ultimate purpose is to help people see their lack of ability to please God and that we need a Savior. And this upsets the people when Jesus starts preaching these things. And so Jesus says, why do you seek to kill me? And the crowd answer, you have a demon who seeks to kill you. Now, I don't know if this is just the leaders, but it might be the leaders and the crowd, some in the crowd. They were upset that Jesus was speaking the truth, that they're sinners in need of salvation. And I think there's a mixed crowd here. You have some that it even says later that they believe in him. But we know that what's going to happen in six months is the whole crowd is going to turn from him. And they're going to cry out, crucify, crucify him. But Jesus is perfect wisdom. And in absolute wisdom, he challenges their thinking. And he says to them in 21 through 23, I indeed... Jesus answered them and says, I did one deed and you all marveled. For this reason, Moses has given you circumcision, not because it's from Moses, but from the fathers. And on the Sabbath, you circumcise a man. If a man receives circumcision on the Sabbath so that the law of Moses will not be broken, are you angry with me because I made an entire man well on the Sabbath? So what he does is he diverts their attention to a religious rite that every Jew would perform. <laughs> Understand that every Jew understood that by law, on the eighth day, a male child was to be circumcised. And this religious rite, it, it set apart that person to God. It was like setting them apart saying, I am his. But it also had a spiritual sense of spiritual cleansing. And so Jesus is basically saying, are you so hypocritical that you will perform this one rite, you'll, you'll cut away this one area, you'll do this one spiritual thing to make this portion of a person clean when I cleansed a whole man? You hypocrites, think right. Are you so foolish? Jesus says in verse 23, if a man receives circumcision on the Sabbath so that the law of Moses will not be broken, are you angry with, with me because I made an entire man well on the Sabbath? You see, they understood if, if a child was born and then on the eighth day it was the Sabbath, they would still give him circumcision to perform that religious rite of cleansing, if you will. But Jesus on the Sabbath, he heals a whole man completely. And what he's showing is he's heaping judgment on them. Because they're judging him, but he's saying, think rightly. So in verse 24, he says, do not judge according to appearance, but judge with righteous judgment. I think that is really a plea by him to the people. Think right. Understand the heart of God. Now understand, they were angry with him because he healed the man by the pool of Bethesda. And what blows me away about that is that man had been sick and ill for years. We're talking decades. But they didn't care about the man. What they cared about is he did this thing on the Sabbath. But he's showing them right there in front of them that it was right and it actually shows the mercy and the goodness of God. That it's good to do good on the Sabbath. Jesus is God in the flesh, and it dis he displays the wisdom of God. And everything he said and taught, it, it displays his wisdom. Now, we know that even at an early age, that wisdom was already displayed. After Jesus was circumcised on the eighth day, 
This is what was written in Luke 2.40. It says, the child continued to grow and become strong, increasing in wisdom, and the grace of God was upon him. And so every other year that Jesus lived, he increased in wisdom and knowledge. And we all know that he had incredible wisdom, that he is the unique one, because at the age of 12, we know that his family, they went to Jerusalem to celebrate the um, Passover. And so they go in this large caravan, they celebrate Passover, they leave in the big caravan, and about three days later, all of a sudden, his parents realize, oops, our son's not with us. Now, I don't know how that happened. I mean, but I'm thinking probably they had a lot of family members, a lot of people, and so they're thinking he's probably with them, and all of a sudden, they realize their son's not there. So they go back to Jerusalem, and they find Jesus in the temple. And I want to read for you what happens in Luke 2, 46 through 49. It says, three days they found him in the temple sitting in the midst of the teachers, both listening to them and asking them questions. And it says, all who heard him were amazed, Thalmazo, at his understanding and his answers. And when they saw him, his parents were astonished. And his mother said to him, son, why have you treated us this way? Behold, your father and I have been anxiously looking for you. And he said to them, why is it that you were looking for me? Did you not know I needed to be in my father's house? Already by the age of 12, the uniqueness of Christ, his, his ability of wisdom, his knowledge was already present. He is unlike anyone else. And Luke, Luke ends this section in verse 52 with this. He says, and Jesus kept increasing in wisdom and stature and favor with God and man. And now he's 33 years old. This is at the end of his ministry. And he's preaching in this temple. He is the wise one. He is unlike anyone else. And do you know that the Bible teaches that you too can have the wisdom of Christ? It says that you can have the mind of Christ if you know Christ. That he'll impart that to you through the word of God and by his spirit. I read to you 1 Corinthians 2.14. Let me extend it to verse 16. It says, but the natural man does not accept the things of the spirit of God. They're foolishness to him. He cannot understand them because they're spiritually appraised. But he who is spiritual appraises all things, yet he himself is appraised by no man. For who has known the mind of the Lord that he will instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. When a person receives Christ, accepts Christ, is transformed, born again, God by his spirit begins to work in him. And as the word of God begins to transform the life and the mind, we're changed. Do you have the mind of Christ this morning? Do you know him? You know, Christians, we consider Jesus to be the Messiah. We, we trust that, that He is the living Lord, God in the flesh, that He lived the perfect life that we can't live, that, that He willingly went and suffered and died on the cross, and then He rose again. And then He also was on this earth for four days, and then He ascended to heaven. And, and we believe in those truths taught in the Scriptures. But there are many other religions that teach about Jesus but it is not the Jesus of the Bible. Islam teaches about Jesus. 25 different times Jesus is mentioned in the Quran. By the way, it's interesting, he's mentioned more than Muhammad. But he's known as one of the four prophets. He's a man that speaks truths of God. Buddhists teach that Jesus was not a unique son of God, but that he was just an enlightened man. He was not the God-man. Buddha taught that there's no personal essence or soul of a person and that there's no personal afterlife. We know Jesus teach that salvation is found only through him alone. 
But Buddhists believe that salvation is achieved through effort. It's achieved through what they call the eightfold path. The Baha'i faith considers Jesus to be a manifestation of, of God as a prophet, but he is not God in the flesh. He is simply a man who knows some divine truth, and on and on I could go. But guys, we believe that Jesus is the unique one. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 2 says in these last days, God has spoken to us through his son. And the question we have to answer is, do we know him? Do we have the son? Because without him, you do not have life. Jesus is unique in his teaching. Jesus is unique in his wisdom and knowledge. The third thing is Jesus is unique in his birth. Jesus is unique in his birth. Jesus came into being as no other person in history. Look at verses 25 through 31. It says, so some of the people of Jerusalem were saying, is this not the man whom they're seeking to kill? Look, he's speaking publicly and they're saying nothing to him. The rulers do not really know that this is the Christ, do they? However, we know where this man is from and whenever the Christ may come, no one knows where he is from. And Jesus cried out in the temple teaching and saying, you both know me and you know where I'm from. I have not come of myself, but he who sent me is true, whom you do not know. I know him because I come from him. He sent me. So they were seeking to seize him, and no man laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. But many of the crowd believed in him, and they were saying, when the Christ comes, he will not perform more signs than those which this man has, will he? So it says here in verse 25, some of the people of Jerusalem were saying, is this man, is this not the man whom they are seeking to kill? So you have these religious leaders, they think they're, they're going to try to take him, and they think they got it all kind of under wraps that nobody knows, but the crowd already knows. I mean, sometimes I think leaders think that, you know, people don't know, but right here, everybody in the crowd knows that these guys really want to grab him. What's confusing for the people is that they're allowing him to teach, that they're allowing him to preach, and they're thinking, well, well do they believe then that maybe he's the Christ? They say he's, he's speaking publicly. They, they say in verse 27, we know where this man is from, but whenever the Christ comes, no one knows where he's from. <clears throat> There's kind of a, a mixed conversation going on in the crowd, mixed views about who Jesus is and what he's saying. And so what Jesus does is he cries out. He yells. He, he, he begins to, to cry out loudly in the temple saying, you both know me and know where I am from, and I have not come of myself, but he who sent me is true whom you don't know. I know him because I'm from him. He sent me. Now, the, what's happening here is the, the people, they knew that Jesus was from Galilee, from Nazareth. And they think that he's just a simple carpenter's son. They're stunned by his preaching and his teaching because it's amazing, everyone. But I want you to understand something right up front. Jesus is unique in every area of his life, even in his birth. He, he's not of this earth. He's uniquely born. The Father sent him. Jesus has always been. He is eternal. He's, he's co-equal with the Father and the Son. And we know that the Father sent him because John 3.16 makes it so clear. It says, God so loved the world that he sent his only begotten Son. That whoever believes in him will not perish but will have eternal life. And by the way, the word begotten means unique. He is the unique Son. And John 1.14 says that he became flesh. 
that he's always existed. And, and Philippians says he, he put on flesh. He took on human form. And he existed from all eternity. And it says that and we beheld him and beheld his glory. We beheld the glory of the unique one. And he's unlike any other person when the way he was born. He was born of a virgin. Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14, it prophesied about it. It says, the, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, a virgin will be with child, will bear a son. And we know that when Mary was confronted by the angel Gabriel, she's like, he says, you're going to have a child. And she's like, well, how can this be? I, I've never been with a man. And so the angel Gabriel in, in Luke chapter 1, verse 35, says that the Holy Spirit will come upon you. And the power of the Most High will overshadow you. And for this reason, that holy child, he'll be called the Son of God. Unique. Unique in conception, uniquely born, born of a virgin. But as I begin to think about Jesus, he is unique in so many ways. I mean, I could give you lists of just writing out different things I began to think, just even when I began to think about his birth. I mean, in a dream, his stepfather knows that he's going to be the, the, the stepfather of the coming Messiah. The angels, they, they, they looked forward to his arrival. The prophets, they foretold of his arrival. The angels, they proclaimed his glory. Think of this one. The baby John, still in the mother's womb, when Mary shows up next to Elizabeth because Jesus is in her womb, the baby leaps for joy and is filled with the Holy Spirit. The wise men supernaturally know where Jesus is, and they're led by a star. The shepherds, they rejoiced to see him. Simeon, he blessed him as the Messiah in the temple. The prophetess Anna, she gives thanks for him. And his mother Mary, as she watched his life play out, she, she took those things and she treasured them and she put them in her heart. And because Jesus was born... You and I can have a real knowledge of who God is. Because Jesus says, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. We know the very character and the nature and the attributes of God because of his Son. And because of Jesus, redemption is available to us. Redemption was not available through an animal, but because Jesus is the perfect man, he paid the price that no one else could pay for your sin and my sin. And now redemption is available through him. And God and humanity, it has been reconciled. Where Adam failed, Jesus didn't fail. He lived the life. He kept the standard. He is the unique one. And because of that, we worship him. We worship him as the only one, the unique one. But these Jewish leaders here, they didn't worship him. In fact, as they struggled with him. In verse 30, so they were seeking to seize him. But no, land made, no man laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. And it says also that the, there were some in the crowd that believed. And they said that, isn't this the Christ? So again, you have this mix. But his hour was not yet. His hour was six months from now. It's interesting, as I was looking through different things about the uniqueness of Christ, one thing that's very unique is when he was born. Now, there were thousands of years before the birth of Christ and the Population Reference Bureau estimates that the number of people who have ever lived on this planet is about 105 billion people. 
but only 2% of the world's population were born before Jesus. Eric Kreps, he's of the Survey Research Center in the University of Michigan Institute. This is what he said. He says, God's timing couldn't have been more perfect. Christ showed up just before the exponential explosion of the world's population. The Bible says in the fullness of time, God sent forth his son. And when Christ came, the nation of Israel had been prepared. Roman peace dominated the Mediterranean world. It was the age of literacy, learning, and roads. And the stage was set for the advent of God's son to come into the world. It was God's providential plan in human history. And we see the wisdom and the character and the uniqueness of Christ all laid out even in the time that he was born. And there have been billions that have come to faith in Christ because he's the unique son of God. He's unique in his teaching, in his wisdom and knowledge, in his birth. And the last one, he is unique in his death. Jesus is unique in his death. He's unique in the way he lived, but he's also unique in the way that he died. Look at verses 32 through 36. It says, the Pharisees heard the crowd was muttering these things about him. And the chief priests and the Pharisees sent officers to seize him. Therefore, Jesus said, for a little while longer, I am with you. And then I go to him who sent me. You will seek me and you will not find me. And where I am, you cannot come. And the Jews then said to one another, where does this man intend to go that we will not find him? He's not intending to go to the dispersion among the Greeks and teach the Greeks, is he? What is the statement he said? You will seek me and you will not find me and where I am that you cannot come. So the Pharisees, they hear the crowd muttering these things about him and they send these officers to seize him in verse 32. Now it's interesting, the, the officers uh, part of these chief priests. The chief priests were Sadducees. The Pharisees actually partnered with the Sadducees, but normally they were always at odds ends. They didn't believe the same thing theologically, but they partnered together when it came to Christ. And they try to have him seized. But Jesus knows all things, and he doesn't try to flee. What does he do? He preaches. He begins to teach. And he says to them, for a little while longer, you'll have me with you, then I will go to him. You will seek me, you will not find me, and where I am, you cannot come. He's speaking about his coming death. He's speaking about his coming resurrection. And he's speaking about the coming ascension into heaven. And this is a warning. It's a warning for everyone who hears it. He's saying, you will seek me, you will not find me. Where I am, you cannot come. If you do not believe, if you will not respond, the Bible always says today is the day of salvation. Jesus is crying out there because the moment was then. And there are times when the Holy Spirit is moving and the truth is laid bare, when people must respond to the truth. And if you will not, if you will harden your day in the day of His coming, you will not see Him. You will stand condemned. So I think he's pleading here. I think he's, he's, he's crying out to the people here, letting them know that the time is then. Isaiah wrote, seek me while the Lord may be found. Call upon me while the Lord is near. Listen to me. If you do not have him, respond to him this morning. It is an open invitation for those that hear the truth to respond to the truth. Jesus is unique. He, he's different than any other person in the way that he lived, but also in the way that he died. 
Now, he died a horrific death of crucifixion. Now, there were thousands of people that died of crucifixion. So what makes him unique? He rose again. Three days later, he comes out of the tomb. And not only did he just come out of the tomb, he stayed around for 40 days to make sure that everybody saw him. Over 500 people witnessed that Christ was there. 1 Corinthians 15, 6 says that he appeared to more than 500 of the brethren at one time. But I want you to hear Jesus' words as a way of closing here because this is very important. In Jesus' final trial, right before he went to the cross, this is what he said in Luke twenty-two sixty-nine. He says, but from now on, the Son of Man will be seated at the right hand of the power of God. Speaking about his resurrection and ascension, that he's at the right hand making intercession for you and I. But listen to this. And then they said to him, are you the Son of God then? And he said to them, yes, I am. Did you hear that? They heard it, they rejected him. They pulled out his beard. They put a crown of thorns on his head. They stripped him naked and they flogged him and they hung him on a cross. He is the unique one. He is the son of God. And you must and I must respond in faith. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the scriptures. Thank you for the clarity of Jesus' teaching. Thank you for the clarity of his word. And in every generation, since the birth of Christ, this truth has, has rung true. And there are those, Lord, who respond in faith and believe. I pray for that this morning. Will you speak to hearts this morning? Will you reveal yourself in truth? May they see the uniqueness of Christ. And may they believe. In Jesus' name, amen. Please stand with me.